0: That is always a good song to sing, isn't it? No matter how many times we've sung it before, it's just that message rings so true. Well, this is a dangerous night to be here at the bridge. And the reason why I say that is, do you know something I don't know? You start laughing like you know what I'm going to say, right? Um, But if you notice, there's no clock on the back wall. So I have no clue what time it is, okay? So... Is, is all right? So, no, I do have a, I do have a little wristwatch I'm going to have to use tonight. But if you're wondering what happened to the clock, got to give a shout out to my friends, the college students. And they reminded me last week why I love youth ministry and why I wish I never became a senior pastor and wish I was still a youth pastor. Um, I've been hanging out with the college kids after um, uh, the bridge the last few Wednesday nights and we were just talking through the sermon and just figuring out how to p- apply the book of Hosea to our lives and, you know, it's been really a, a, an enjoyable time and, and so anyway, last week we broke up and we're kind of dismissed and I was walking around and uh, locking doors and turning off lights and, and all of a sudden I heard this smash. It's like, what was that? Like I'm walking back up the hall and I look into the sanctuary and there's this group of college kids all in a circle all doing this. And so I walk in, I'm like, well, what happened? And I look in, and there's the clock that was always on the back wall, right? Survived since the church was built, okay? It's been here. And uh, just smashed, right? Glass everywhere, okay? And, and I'm like, guys, what happened? you are like, well, you know, I, he was coming out, and I was coming in, and I thought it'd be funny to do this, and, and I did this, and all of a sudden, and all of a sudden, and then we're just thankful it didn't hit anybody in the head, and... And so they're all kind of standing around looking like, what do we do now, you know? And I'm like, well, I can tell you where the vacuum cleaner is, and you can <laughs> take that to the dumpster, and let's go to the, get the vacuum cleaner. And let's clean this up. And I told him afterwards, I said, guys, this is, this is awesome. I said, thank you so much for just reminding me why I love youth ministry, because I guarantee you, uh, this would never happen to the lamplighters. <laughs> I, I just can't imagine... Sonny coming to me and Fred, you know, with their head hung low. Uh, Pastor, uh, we broke the clock in the back room. We're so sorry. We, didn't, we don't know how it happened, but that just doesn't happen when you're dealing with the lamp ladders, right? But you never know what's going to happen with the college kids, right? So never a dull moment. So anyway, we're taking a collection tonight. You don't know that yet, the college ministry. You, we're going to take a collection tonight, make sure, you know, we can buy a new clock. So just kidding. Oh, now Sonny's wondering about all the other things that are broken in the church. Who are we going to blame for that? All right, I'm not going to throw you guys on the bus. I don't think they did it, Sonny, okay? We don't know about that. Love believes all things, right, okay? Anyway, if you want to feel younger, by the way, you can just sit over here, okay? It's, it's a good place to feel younger. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Hosea chapter 14. And um, we're going to wrap up our study in... This wonderful book, and the title of tonight's message is called Waywardness to Wisdom, Waywardness to Wisdom, and there, in my opinion, is no story in the Bible more beloved than the story of the prodigal son. Let me read it for you, and if you want, you can turn there as well, keep your finger in Hosea. 14, but it's found in Luke chapter 15, the only gospel that has this story. It's unique to the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. You're familiar with it, I'm sure. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But, verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hard men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hard men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. This story, the story of the prodigal son, is really a a microcosm of the story of the entire Bible, that wayward sinners who wisely come to their senses and repent of their sin will find their loving Heavenly Father waiting to graciously embrace them and forgive them and to lavishly restore them. I mean, this is the prevailing message of God's Word which is also the main message of the book of Hosea. And we could call the book of Hosea the story of the prostitute wife. And what the story of the prodigal son is to the New Testament, the story of the prostitute wife is to the Old Testament. In the same way that The prodigal son foolishly wandered away from his father's love and stumbled into a life of sin. The prostitute wife also foolishly wandered away from her husband's love and stumbled into a life of sin. But what sets the story of the prostitute wife apart from the story of the prodigal son, and I think makes it even more glorious and you could say even more scandalous is that unlike the father who stayed at home and waited for his son to return, the husband, Hosea, went out looking for his wife and found her, not in a pigsty, but on an auction block, being sold as a sex slave to the highest bidder, and he bought her and carried her back home and nursed her back to health. We know that that is the main point, really the core of the book of Hosea. We find it in Hosea chapter 3. Just to remind you, this is really chapter 3 is the heart of the entire book of Hosea. It's, been month, it's really been months since we were here, so let me read it for you again. This is the climax, really, of the first half of the book or the first part of the book, talking about Hosea's marriage. Hosea chapter 3 verse 1 then the Lord said to me go again love a woman who is loved by her husband yet an adulteress remember God told Hosea to go marry this unfaithful woman who was either already an adulteress or who would become an adulteress and he says I want you to go and love her again even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. And so I, brought her for, I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. So he actually went and bought his own wife back for the price of really less than the price of a slave. Verse three, then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be towards you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. And so, really, chapter three brings the entire book together. And, and it's not just about Hosea's marriage, right? It's, about, it's not just about the relationship of Hosea and Gomer. It's about the relationship between God and Israel. And he makes, clearly makes that connection here in chapter 3. And so what Hosea experienced in his, in his marriage to Gomer was the picture of what God experienced in his marriage to Israel. And so God called Hosea... Uh, to to feel what he felt so that he could be prepared to be his mouthpiece, his voice to the nation of Israel and plead with them with the same sense of urgency and passion that God would, if he could speak to them audibly, right? And so here in the climax of Hosea's message in chapter 14, he referred back to his core message in chapter 3. And here in Hosea 14, Hosea cried out one last time for Israel to repent and return to the Lord so they could be restored and healed. And we know that if you know anything about the, the Old Testament uh, books of prophecy, this is, this is the overall theme of every prophetic book. Turn to God in repentance and God will heal you and restore you. It like, becomes the broken record throughout the Old Testament, right? Turn to God in repentance, repent, and you'll be, you'll be restored. But if you continue in your sinful rebellion, the message continues, God will punish you. He will discipline you in order to bring you back into a right relationship with him. That's pretty much the message of the Old Testament from starting, I guess, in Isaiah all the way to Malachi. All the prophets, the the major prophets and the minor prophets, that's the essential message. In other words, God will chasten his people, but he will never abandon his people. And that's really the hopeful message that we, we have throughout the, these really doom and gloom books, right, of the Old Testament. like, man, why, why would we study a book like this? It's so depressing, right? All this judgment, all this punishment, all this wrath. Well, it does sound gloomy. It does sound doom. But there's this ray of hope. And we, we find this ray of hope in the book of Hosea, really, in the last... Uh, Four chapters, chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, after all these chapters uh, of Hosea preaching about Israel's sin and how God was going to discipline, he was going to punish them, Hosea h- highlights how God's undying love for Israel will ultimately prevail. So last week in chapter 13, we were reminded again of the doom and gloom that uh was in store for Israel when God would no longer restrain his wrath against their sin. And if you remember, we ended in, on a really downer last, last week, uh, verses 15 and 16. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come, the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. And we said that that was what would happen when the Lord's compassion was removed and Israel's prosperity would come to an end and punishment would be unleashed upon them in the form of the Assyrian invasion. And the Assyrians were notorious for these kind of atrocities that are mentioned here in verse 16. You say, I'm glad that the book doesn't end in chapter 13. I'm glad there's a chapter 14, right? And so really the book... Now takes another positive turn and ends on this high note as Hosea reminded the people of Israel that even in exile, God's offer of restoration still stood if they confessed their sin and repented of it. And we have to understand that, that this generation, okay, uh, did not heed Hosea's message, did they? Because they ended up where? In Assyria. And so, this was really one um, last message that Hosea preached, really to a faithful remnant who would remember this uh, message, this chapter, when they were in uh, exile, and it would encourage them and motivate them to take claim to God's promise that if they would repent, He would restore them. Let me read for you a couple of uh, commentaries that were very helpful in understanding this last chapter and how we're to understand it. First of all, let me read James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite commentators. He said this, This is God's last word, a word that is to sustain the people during the coming days of captivity. I mean, the the, the deal is sealed, okay? They're, They're already going to captivity. There's no change in that now, right? And so this was... Given to sustain the people during the coming days of captivity, in that day they will undoubtedly wonder if God has cast them away utterly. They will feel forsaken, but God wants them to know that their captivity is due not to his wishes for them or abandonment of them, but it's due to their sin, and that in spite of their sin, the way of return stands open. Very well said. Another commentator said it this way, through this final appeal, or excuse me, though this final appeal would surely be rejected by his arrogant and stubborn nation, it would instill hope in the hearts of a righteous remnant and provide the repentant generation of the future with a model to follow in returning to the Lord. And then one of the most helpful commentators that I've used over the course of the last few months is a guy named Leon Wood. And he said this, he said, These final words of Hosea rank with the memorable chapters of the Old Testament. In other words, this is one of the most memorable, premier chapters of the Old Testament. In fact, one of the college young ladies, I, I noticed last week when we were discussing chapter 13, I looked and she showed me chapter 14 is all highlighted in yellow in her Bible. In other words, that this is the, the, the highlight of, of the book, And so this is one of the most memorable chapters of the Old Testament. Leon Wood goes on. He says, like the rainbow after a storm. What a great picture. Chapter 14, this is the rainbow after the storm, right? It it just thunderstorms, lightning crazy, and all of a sudden the sun comes out and you're like, hey, check it out. There's a rainbow. And that's this chapter. He says, like the rainbow after a storm, they promise Israel's final restoration. Here is the full flowering of God's unfailing love for his faithless people, the triumph of his grace, the assurance of his healing, all described in imagery that reveals the loving heart of God. That's why I don't write commentaries, because I can't say it as good as that. (laughs) That's really good, but very helpful. And so let's look at this chapter now, this rainbow after the storm, and I've just divided it into three sections. We're going to see, first of all, true repentance in verses 1 through 3, and then in verses 4 through 8, we're going to see true forgiveness, and then in verse 9, we're going to see true wisdom. So true repentance, true forgiveness, and true wisdom. First of all, let's look at true repentance in verses 1 through 3, and here Hosea uses one of the most often repeated words in Hosea this is probably the 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 the, the most repeated word return Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands, for in you the orphan finds mercy. And so again, for the final time here, Hosea pled with Israel to turn away from their sin and turn back to God, to repent. And uh, what we see here in, in these three verses are really elements of true repentance. And if you remember, this sounds awful familiar to what the people said or what was said back in Hosea chapter 6. You remember this section of Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3? Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Sounds really good, right, on the surface. But we concluded that based on the context that that was a false repentance. That was not genuine sorrow godly sorrow that led to repentance that that, they were just mouthing some words they were being very presumptuous it was a very superficial confession like oftentimes we do right we kind of think if i just say the right things right i sin i'm just going to say the right things go through the little motions that i always go through after i sin and god's going to you know forgive me and i'm going to move on but guess what the very next day or the very next hour we're doing the same thing right that was the nation of israel and so what is, what is true repentance? What sets chapter 14, 1 through 3, apart from chapter 6, verses 1 through 3? I think we see some things here that are obviously uh, genuine uh, in their repentance. First of all, the uh, first element of true repentance is that you confess your sin. You, you, you confess your sin, verse 1. He says, For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. In other words, you need to admit, right, that it's your fault. Don't make excuses, right? Don't blame anyone else, uh, right? You, You know when a person is truly repentant is you don't hear excuses. You don't hear blame shifting, right? They take full responsibility for their sin, that they know they are in the situation they're in, because their sin it's their fault, right? And they know exactly what sins led to their downfall. And so, well, if you didn't do this, or if you did this, or she did this, or he did this, right? No, I know exactly how I ended up here. And I'll tell you why. And you you confess your sin. It was this, 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 and this. So that's the first element of true repentance, is you confess your sin, you admit it. You don't justify it. Secondly, you seek forgiveness for your sin. You don't just confess it and say, yeah, I know what I did and it was wrong. You don't just confess it, but you seek forgiveness. Notice verse 2, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. So you're asking God to take away your sin, to cleanse you and and purify, remove that sin from your life. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to what? to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's the picture of forgiveness all throughout the Old Testament. It's this idea of taking away sin, removing it from us. So we need to confess our sin. We need to seek forgiveness for our sin. And then we need to turn from our sin. Take away all iniquity. Well, it says, verse 2, take words with you and return to the Lord. So it's not enough just to say, boy, I messed up, and God, would you forgive me? But then you need to return to the Lord. You, you need to turn away from your sin, right? We say that's what repentance is, is, is turning away from your sin and turning to God. He's saying return to the Lord. It's not enough to say, oh, I messed up and, and just to keep right on going down that path. There needs to be a change in your life. There needs to be a turning from sin. And it needs to be done in dependence on God's grace. This is another element of true repentance, You need to depend on God's grace. It always makes me nervous when I hear somebody say, man, I totally messed up and I'm so sorry and I've sought God's forgiveness and I know he's forgiven me and and you know what, I'm gonna change. I'm gonna be different and I'm never gonna do this again. I always get a little concerned, right? Because I don't hear, it it sounds like they're depending on who? Themselves, right? That's not true repentance. When you're relying on your own strength to change, and your own ability to reform yourself. No, you need to seek the grace of God, depend on God's grace to restore you. Notice it says, and receive us, what? Graciously. Receive us graciously. And it's almost as if the words that we use in confession and seeking of forgiveness are not our words anyway. They're they're given to us by God. Take words with you and return to the Lord. It's almost as if God provides the words that we're to say. He he knows what we need to say, and so he puts his words in us. In other words, we don't have it in and of ourselves, right, to repent apart from the grace of God, do we? It's initiated by him. It's motivated by him. It's sustained by him. And I think part of uh, true repentance as well is that there's 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 a thanking and praising God for forgiveness. There's a thanking and praising God for forgiveness. Notice it says, say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. That we may present the fruit of our lips. The idea is, uh, and, and it's interesting in the, in the Hebrew here, it says that we may present uh, the fruit of our, of our bulls, our, our bullocks, uh, in other words, um, we know because of our study of the Book of Isaiah, these guys were sacrificing like crazy, right? They, they thought that was the way to to stay in right relationship with God. Is they if if they did something wrong, they just go sacrifice something. They just go kill the cow, sacrifice, kill the lamb, sacrifice it, and they were just kind of going through the motions. And and uh, what did uh, what did uh, Samuel say to Saul? To obey is better than what? Sacrifice In other words, God's not looking for all these sacrifices. He's looking for a broken and contrite heart, according to Psalm 51 verse seven. That's what God will not despise. And so um, it's interesting, the, the writer of Hebrews uses quotes this verse, this phrase, uh, Hosea 14:2, uh, in Hebrews 13:15. Listen to this. See to it that no one comes short, no, that's not it, 13, 15, through him, this is, this is under the heading, God-pleasing sacrifices, through him, through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Again, I think this is just part of a life of worship that we're constantly praising and thanking God for his forgiveness. And then finally, verse 3, part of genuine repentance is that we need to forsake all other allegiances and distractions. That's part of genuine repentance. You're willing to cut off all confidence in other things. You're willing to cut off relationships, uh, whatever it is that, that, that somehow is distracting you, causing you to sin. Notice he says, Assyria will not save us. They had been getting into um, unions, right? Treaties with Assyria for protection. They were depending on Assyria more than they were um, depending on the Lord. We will not ride on horses. You say, well, what's wrong with riding on a horse, you know? Like, wait a minute. I'm a cowgirl. I'm a cowboy. What are you saying? I can't ride a horse? No, the point here was that God had said from the very beginning, don't multiply horses. Why? Why? Because they were really a a, a a piece of battle armor is what it was, and so if you multiplied horses, you were depending on the horses to win your battle rather than depending on God, and so they were depending on Egypt and buying horses from Egypt. That they, hey, we're going to win this war because we got a lot of horses, we got a great cavalry, and so God said, don't don't multiply horses, rely upon me. So we're not going to rely on Assyria, we're not going to rely on horses. Nor will we say again, our God to the work of our hands. In other words, all these idols that we've been making and bowing down to them and calling them God, we're not going to do that anymore. So they were forsaking all their other allegiances and all their, basically all their other gods. James Montgomery Boyce, I think, summarizes these three verses well. He says that true repentance begins with an acknowledgement that sin is sin and that it is ugly and terribly offensive in God's sight. That's the mark of true repentance, that you get how wrong what you did was and how offensive it was to God. And ultimately, you know what David said when he said, against you and you only have I sinned, right? So here we see true repentance. And again, Hosea is calling the nation to truly repent. And if they do, they will receive, secondly, true forgiveness. True forgiveness. Look at verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from them. Now, this is, this is a very important verse because there are a couple of other places in the book of Hosea where God claimed that he would no longer love the people of Israel. Remember, he had a child called uh, Lorumai, chapter 1, verse 6, which meant, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. That was one of uh, uh, go, uh, Hosea and Gomer's kids. And God te- told him to call him Lorumai, or, or it's da- daughter, excuse me, Lorumai, which means I'll no longer have compassion, I'll no longer love. Hosea chapter 9, verse 15. It says, I will love them no more. Chapter 13, verse 14, we already read this. The compassion will be hidden from my sight. So this is, this, is, this is epic here when he says, he says, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. Well, he was angry. God was angry all the way through this book, all throughout Hosea's messages, it was clear that God was angry with the nation of Israel, and now he's reaffirming his undying love for them and he promises to forgive them and heal them and restore them and to turn from his anger and once again pour out his blessing upon Israel. And the next um, three verses, chapter, uh, verses 5, 6, and 7, uh, are really uh, a beautiful portrayal of the Lord's love using... Uh, Hosea is using a bunch of... Well, God's using it through the mouth of Hosea... All these metaphors from nature to symbolize how out of the ruins of a destroyed nation, new growth will, will sprout. And so uh, God uses some of the m- most well known flora of the land of Israel the, the lily, the cedars of Lebanon, and the olive tree to describe his, his restoration. He says, I will be like the dew to Israel. Which, by the way, Sonny was reminding us of, of our trip back in 2009. Some 23 of us went to Israel, and one of the things I remember was how arid of a of a of a of a place uh, Israel is, and uh, not a whole lot of water, and yet it just flourishes with all sorts of agriculture and, 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 and amazing. And well, then the way, the way they did it was uh, they did it through all they do it through all this irrigation. And so there's nothing more important in the land of Israel than, than water, right, and, and dew. And so when God says, listen, I'm going to be the dew, right, to Israel, that, that was a huge blessing for an agricultural community. That, that's how they watered. That you know, was God's watering system. He says, I'm going to be like the dew to Israel, and this is what's going to happen. He will blossom. Israel will blossom like the lily. Again, a, a flower known for its, its, its beauty, its aroma, its aroma. And he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. And again, the, the idea of the cedars of Lebanon, you just get the idea of these strong, deep-rooted trees, right? That can endure anything. Verse 7, those who live in his shadow will again raise grain. They will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. And there, there is... Um, I jumped over, I jumped over verse 6, excuse me. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. The olive tree here, uh, you know, is is just invaluable to their livelihood in Israel. It it was a source of so many things that they would use. It was kind of like petroleum today. That's how they would use olive oil for cooking and for burning things. And it was just, it's essential even in their culture today. So what's the point here? Well, sin makes us ugly. Sin makes us ugly. But God will restore their beauty, right? Like the blossom of the lily. Sin weakens us. And yet God is going to renew their strength like the cedars of Lebanon. Thirdly, sin robs us of value. And God is going to make them valuable Again, I think this is a great concept for us to consider because I know some of you who have sinned in your past, or maybe you're sinning presently, and it's causing you to feel ugly, it's causing you to feel weak, and it's causing you to feel worthless, and that's just what sin does to us. There's some sins I I know that some of you have committed where you feel these things, you feel dirty, you feel ugly, you feel weak, you feel worthless, and you've even asked God to forgive you for those things and you still feel that way. And so again, the, 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 the message here, the hope is, is confess that sin. Repent of that sin and he'll restore your life that you thought could never be restored. And what we see here. Uh, in verse 7, as we go on, those who live in the shadow will again raise grain. They will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. And again, that, the, the, all the language here, all this agricultural blessing is really the, the return of covenantal blessing, that, that Israel is going to once again be a fruitful vine. And we know that uh, all throughout the uh, the beginning of the Old Testament, God said, listen, if you... You go into the land, I'm going to give you the promised land, and you continue to obey me, and and man, it'll flourish. It'll just keep on flourishing. But if you disobey me, I'm going to curse the land, right? And it won't produce for you, you won't have flocks, you won't have grain, you won't have any of this stuff. And so here he's promising the return of all these things. Now, we need to understand here that the ultimate fulfillment of these blessings, I believe, will be in the millennial kingdom. Since Israel has has yet to repent to this degree. Um, and they're not going to do that until the end of the tribulation. And in, in Ze- Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, it talks about how Israel will recognize Jesus as their Messiah and they'll mourn because they'll realize they crucified their Messiah and they'll repent and they'll receive Jesus. And then this, this blessing will return, and Israel will once again become the, the nation that God intended them to be, once they're reconciled to him, he's going to use them to bring great honor and glory to himself and, and be a great blessing to others the way that he originally intended. Notice verse 8, and this section really ends with this cry, "Oh Ephraim, again, the largest tribe of the ten northern tribes uh, synonymous term for Israel, o, o Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? And we know that is, uh, idolatry was their besetting sin, was it not? I mean, this is what they kept. This is they were spiritual adulterers. They were cheating on God. That's the theme of this book, right? They had gone after other lovers, and they weren't physical lovers. They were spiritual lovers. The, the, the Baals and the Asherahs and all the other gods of the, the, the Canaanites. And so here God's crying out to his people one last time for them to forsake their idols. And notice what he says. He says, It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxurious luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. And again, God was just reminding them, as he already has multiple times, numerous times, that, that he is their protector. He is their provider. He's the one that should get the credit and the glory for all that they have, all that they've done, instead of giving it to Baal. Derek Kidner, uh, one, one of my favorite commentators, Old Testament commentators, said this. He said, this plea rests on the incomparable or incomparable claims of God? Can he any longer be spoken of, even thought of in the same breath as idols? Can Egypt's or Assyria's protection compete with his? Do they answer when you call? Do they care as he cares? And the whole point was, hey, I get all the glory. I get all the credit. Everything you have, everything good that's ever happened to you has been all based on my grace. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. No one else gave it to you, right? It was by my grace and for my honor that you are made fruitful. And so that's true forgiveness, true restoration. And then we come to the third and final section here. It's really just this last verse, verse 9. And here we have true wisdom. True wisdom. And this is really interesting how this prophecy ends. I'm not familiar with any other uh, uh, prophetic book that ends in this unique way because verse 9 sounds very, very much like a proverb. It sounds like wisdom literature, not prophecy. Notice what Hosea says. Whoever is wise... Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. And so here's the, the epilogue, if you will, the the grand conclusion, of uh, the concluding paragraph of the book of Hosea. And he's basically appealing to all those who read or hear this prophecy or who study the prophecy, to be wise and heed the lessons of this book. What are the lessons? There's three lessons. He says, number one, for the ways of the Lord are right. The God ways are, are right. It's just, it's just right. Number two, the righteous will walk in them. Those who want to be right, do right, right will walk in, will obey the ways of the Lord. Thirdly, the transgressor, the the sinner, the rebellious one, will stumble over these things. And notice the connection here. It's kind of like a a bookend to verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have what? Stumbled because of your iniquity. And then he says he ends the chapter, but transgressors will stumble in them. The point is very simple. If you obey God, if you obey the principles of this book, of this prophecy specifically, you will experience the blessing of God. But if you disobey the principles of this book, you will suffer the consequences of your sin. Bottom line wise people, smart people, discerning people listen to God's word and they do what it says. Period. And so if you don't listen to God's word, and you don't do what it says, you are dumb, you're foolish, right? That's what he's saying. You lack wisdom, you're undiscerning, you're a fool. And so Israel foolishly failed to listen, and they stumbled in sin, and they ended up in captivity. The question is, what's going to happen to you? You have the opportunity, I've had the opportunity, we've had the opportunity to hear the very same thing that the nation of Israel heard. The very same message, the very same principles. And, and guess what? The book of Hosea continues to speak to us today. This is not a dead, an old dead book that only applied to the nation of Israel. It applies to us. And so we've had the opportunity, the privilege, the accountability even, of hearing the very same message that the nation of Israel heard but failed to heed. And so what Hosea is saying, hey, listen, be wise, be discerning, learn from this, from this book, from this prophecy. And if you apply the message of this book to your life, you won't stumble and fall into sin, but you'll experience God's richest blessings in your life. We all like to quote um, Those of us who are parents anyway like to quote Ephesians 6, 1 and 2 to our kids, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, and it will go well with you, and you'll live long on the earth. We we like that verse. That's like, I want that to be my kid's life verse right now. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, and it will go well with you and you'll live long on the earth. It's a promise of blessing, right? It's the principle of Scripture. You obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you. And I think that verse doesn't just apply to our kids. It applies to God's kids. And that verse applies to all of us. Children, right? Obey your heavenly Father in the Lord, for this is right. Right? Honor, right, your heavenly father, and it will go well with you, and you'll live long on the earth. So the question is will you walk or will you stumble? I and mean, this, is, this, is, this is so foundational for life. Your life is, is going to hinge on what you do with the book of Isaiah. Your, your, your life is either going to be walking or stumbling the only two ways to live. You can either walk with God or you can stumble in sin. And what you do with the message of this book will determine what your life is like. If you spend it walking or stumbling. Psalm 107, verse 43 has a similar ring to Hosea 14:9 Psalm 107 verse 43 Who is wise let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindness of the Lord Who is wise let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindness of the Lord there is so much application to our lives, to wisely consider the love of God. When you consider God's love for sinners, when you consider God's love for his children, if you're one of his children, there's profound implications to that. And so the scriptures call us to be wise and to give heed to what we've heard over the last four or five months as we've gone through 14 messages out of the book of Hosea. And uh, how is our life going to change as a result? And I think this is just, again, a a wonderful reminder to us that if you've never come to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can come to him right now, tonight. And you confess your your life of sin to him and, and, and throw yourself on God's mercy and grace in Christ, and no matter what you've done, no matter how badly you have stumbled in life, you are never beyond the love of God. Repentance and restoration are always an option as long as you still have breath. And so here we have an unforgettable, really impossible to forget, Reminder of the relentless love of God for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and uh, we thank you for Hosea in particular. Lord, we so need to be reminded of your steadfast love for us and how you are faithful even when we are faithless because you cannot deny your character you are a faithful God you, you don't know how to be anything else but that you can't be unfaithful but Lord we are and so we thank you for the way you love us in spite of our sinful rebellion our waywardness and I pray that we would uh, confess our waywardness to you tonight that our hearts are just prone to wander or we feel it all the time But Lord, that we would go from being wayward to being wise. And that we would consider your great love for us uh, as illustrated through the relationship between Hosea and Gomer. And Lord, that we would think about that every time that we are tempted to sin, that we are going to sin against love, a love beyond compare. Lord, a love that we can't even begin to fathom. That how could we sin against one who has loved us so much and done so much, Lord, that we could be reconciled with you. And so I pray that we would just learn to just wisely meditate on your love, that we would be captivated by your love, that we would be motivated, everything we do and say would be motivated by your love. And Lord, that you would compel us to want to share your love with others. How could we keep this great love a secret? But Lord, we would want to share it with others, Lord, and that they would see the work that you've accomplished in our lives uh, through the love that you've shown us in Christ. We ask this in his name, amen.